Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective. This week's episode is a rerun of an earlier show not on the Climactic feed, but one of the other shows on our network, Catastrophic, telling first-person stories of the 2019-2020 Australian bushfire season. The reason we're choosing to rerun this episode is, sadly, this material is no less relevant today than it was a year ago. In some of the largest wildfires in their recorded history, the state of California is going through what even just a few years ago felt like the direst of predictions about what may happen in a future of uncontrolled climate change. An area the size of the state of Rhode Island has already burned, and COVID, a heat wave, power failures, and then wildfire from dry lightning storms has caused fires, hundreds of fires, in inaccessible areas of the state. As I record this just a few hours ago, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, officially called on Australia for help. While the scars of our bushfire season are still raw, and many of our fellow citizens and whole communities are fearfully awaiting the return of our own summer, Trump has returned to his usual refrain of blaming the state of California for not cleaning up the floors of their forests. Starting again in California, I said, you gotta clean your floors, you gotta clean your forests. Saying, I've been telling them this now for three years, but they don't want to listen. listen. The environment. The environment, the environment. environment. But But they have massive massive fires fires again. again. In California, maybe we're just gonna have to make them pay for it because they don't listen to us. It could be the debate in Australia settled over hazard reduction burns and fuel loads. One can only hope. But if we can learn anything from our Northern Hemisphere contemporaries, it looks like that debate is not yet been put to bed. Regarding the power outages that have hit California and only compounded this crisis, power plants with the ability to produce almost 6,000 megawatts, or about 15% of California's grid, were reported as being offline when temperatures surged last Friday. Hydroelectric power was being produced under expectations because of a lack of water in reservoirs. Some plants, including those that burn natural gas, might have been producing less power because it was too hot for them to operate normally. Why is this relevant? Because California is going through a transformation of their energy system, and the transition to renewables is being blamed in some quarters for the failure and blackouts throughout California. But it's important to note it has been poor management and mistakes that have caused this. And at a time where governments here in Australia are under the microscope, we cannot afford to allow mismanagement or poor planning to hide behind green bashing, like we're sadly seeing in the US. Before I leave you with this intense and powerful first-person account of the fires that ripped through Cabargo, I'd like to note that it is Earth Overshoot Day, the 22nd of August, as I record this. This day marks the date when humanity's demand for ecological resources and services in a given year exceeds what Earth can regenerate in that year. 
This year, that lands on August 22nd, but we can move the date. We can move the date by 21 days. If we just use existing, off-the-shelf commercial technologies for buildings, industrial processes, and electricity production, like Beyond Zero Emissions is calling for in their Million Jobs plan. Find a link to the episode where we adapt Beyond Zero Emissions' public launch of that plan in the show notes. We can move the date by 17 days if we reduced global meat consumption by 50% and replaced those calories through a vegetarian diet. We are actively looking for stories of transition, of people and groups and communities from a meat-based to a plant-based diet. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just reach out to hello at climactic.fm. If you've got a story like that, just reach out. We'd love to help you tell it. And we can move the date by 13 days if we reduce our footprint from driving by 50% and assume one-third of car miles are replaced by public transport and two-thirds by biking and walking. The source of this information is overshootday.org, and you can find a link in the show notes. And now I'll leave you with this episode that is sadly no less apt or relevant than when it was aired. The story of Zoe Pook and the town of Cabargo. And wherever you're listening, stay safe, stay distanced, and stay engaged. This podcast tells honest and raw stories from the Australian bushfires that may be triggering for some people. Please take care when listening to this podcast and stop if it makes you feel anxious in any way. We recommend wearing headphones, especially if there are kids around. Catastrophic. Tales from the Aussie bushfires. Uh, so my name's Zoe. Um, we're currently living in a town called Bermagui, uh, which is about 15 minutes from our hometown where our house was in Cabargo. Um, and I'm a jeweller. On the 30th of December, um, we had a, a ton of people at our house post-Christmas and pre-New Year. Um, luckily on that day, most of us left, including me and uh, our two kids, my girls. We were going to um, a family wedding in Adelaide and I was going to be driving to Melbourne with my brother to catch a flight from there to Adelaide. Uh, so we left the morning of the 30th. Um, and there was, you know, a f- we knew that there, there was a fire west of Cobago. My husband works for national parks and he works on fires for national parks. So he was up in Batemans Bay at the Currawan fire. He'd been there for a few days. Um, and he said to me, you know, there's a possibility that that fire out west, which is called the Badger Fire, might impact Cabago, but, you know, just letting you know if I can't make it to the wedding, you know, just because it, it might impact. And I said, you know what? So anyway, my brother and I and the girls got on our way driving to Melbourne. Um, as that day on the 30th, we actually got stuck in the um, East Gippsland fires. 
as we were trying to get through East Gippsland to Melbourne, we got stopped um, and advised that we were going to have to um, stay in a town called Orbost. So we drove into that town. Um, sky was red. It was like 3 p.m., you know. The sky was red. It was getting dark. It was very, very smoky. Um, we were advised that there were no rooms left in town and we would have to stay at the evacuation centre, which was the Cricket Oval. Um, we were obviously not prepared for any of that because we were just on our way to um, Adelaide with carry-on baggage. Um, so we actually managed to find a motel room in a town called Marlow, um, which is on the coast. So we we stayed there um, being, you know, told that we would probably be evacuated to the beach fairly soon because Olbost was going to come under ember attack and that would impact Marla's also it was it was a frightening situation for me and my brother and the girls we didn't know because communications had gone down by that point where we were we didn't know that anything was potentially going to happen in Cabago because we were getting no information uh, it was a tense night that night. Neither of us slept very much. Sirens were going off all the time. Um, and in the morning, I called my husband just to let him know that we were stuck um, in August and what was happening for us. Um, he, I managed to get a call out and he answered in a very agitated, sort of heightened state. And he just said to me, yep, I'm okay. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. I think I can save the house. And I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you can save the house? Um, and he was like, it's here. The fire's here. It's hit Cabago. Um, but I think I've got it. I think I can save the house. And I was like, what are you like? It was a, it was a massive shock to me because I'd had no warning that anything was going on at all. Um, and I said, are you okay? And he said, yep, I'm okay, I'm okay. But hang on, I've got to go. One of the gutters is catching and hung up. Um, and I immediately was, you know, trying to get some, where we were was just a tiny little patch. So I immediately went on to um, social media, as you do, the news, trying to find out what was going on. Um, and I realized that, it was a fairly serious situation that Cabago was in at that point. Um, you know, I saw pictures of the main street half obliterated. There were reports coming in that the school had gone, which was false, thank goodness. Um, I saw a friend of mine. She'd put the post up on Facebook saying she couldn't get in contact with her husband and he had stayed behind to defend their place. And could someone get there, please? And la la la. And I was thinking, okay, shit, this is actually a very serious situation, despite the fact that Scott, my husband, was sounding quite confident. Um, I suddenly realized what a serious situation it was there. Um, so I, there was then like a period of about five hours where I couldn't get hold of him. So I obviously started to panic. Um, had a, small little window of what it would look like if terrible things had happened which luckily they didn't um so I then went into you know sort of 
slight panic about, okay, we need to find him. My brother was being very calm and helpful, you know, telling me, look, he knows what he's doing. He's fire trained. He's got all his gear. You know, he's got tanks. He'll be okay. And the rational side of my brain was saying, yes, that's true. He will be okay. But then, the, you know, the catastrophic side of my brain was going, but what if? So we then called my family in Adelaide and said, can you, because we are having trouble communicating because of reception, can you please do whatever you can to see if you can find him? Um, so they all went into overdrive doing that, calling anyone they could think of. We called triple zero. They were like, we are under the pump. We will try and get someone up there, but we can't, we won't be able to report back if we do. Um, we called the hospitals, obviously. We put it out on Facebook. I contacted a friend of mine in Bermagui who was at the evacuation centre here, um, and he, they put a call out there at the evac centre and in Cabago, la, la, la. Long, long, painful, scary story short. Um, it was a National Parks fire crew who he got in contact with finally, who he hooked up with um, at Cabago. He'd managed to, when he realised that he was losing the fire for the house, that he, it was just, yeah, was lost, um, he he left, he drove out, having to, luckily he had his chainsaw because he had to cut trees out of the driveway first to get out. Um, and they picked him up and they looked after him for that day. So then when I finally managed to talk to him, I still didn't know that the house was gone. It was the last time I spoke to him, he was quite confident that he'd got it um and then I spoke to him that evening and he told me that yeah everything was gone the house the sheds we'd just finished renovating a little granny flat that we were going to move into while we renovated the main house um everything was gone he'd managed to save five of the goats but three of them died all the chickens um and a lovely horse that we had that was that's a whole other story um, so yeah, we were all in a large degree of shock. Um, we're still stuck in Orbost, so we, we still can't get out because the highways are closed both ways. We've missed our flight. You know, I hadn't told the kids yet because they were still in a, you know, an unsafe situation and I didn't want to then add on to it. Oh, actually, we've also just lost our house at home and Cabago has been badly affected. So my brother and I managed to leave. We got out of Orbos. They opened the highway for two hours to let people out. So we took that window. Um, it was like 6 p.m. Um, and my brother said, how far is it to Adelaide? Uh, I said, it's 11 hours. He said, come on, let's just do it. So we drove overnight to Adelaide, got, got to Adelaide with day in the morning, like 8 a.m. And just kind of like, it was great to have my family all there from the UK for this wedding because they managed to, you know, they obviously looked after us and the kids. I told the kids, which was another fun conversation. Um, and Scott, you know, my husband was st stuck over in Cabago. He, he couldn't get out. Um, so he missed the wedding. Um, and then I think 
on the 2nd of January, he was back on fires with National Park. So he was back down at Eden on the border fire there with National Parks. So it was six days before um, we managed to all get together again in Canberra, um, which was, and the dog was somewhere else as well. She was with the dog sitter who was also being evacuated, who, you know, looked after our dog very well. Um, so we managed to finally all get back together, me, the girls, the dog, Scott, in Canberra. Lovely woman put us up in her Airbnb for free. And then we all came back, yeah. And then we all came back to Cabago. Um, and, yeah, for me and the girls, it was the first time that we, that we got, came back and just saw the devastation, you know, that the landscape was just black. There were, you know, houses gone everywhere. Half the high street was just in rubble. It was just very confronting. Girls didn't want to go and see the house, which is fair enough. I did. Um, yeah, and it was full on. It was just, yeah, it was a violent scene, you know, just a lot, a lot of, yeah, devastation and destruction. And you see it, if, you know, I've seen it on TV before, but until you really see it in, 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 in the flesh, in full 3D, it, it's you don't really get it you know it's it's very confronting you know kids are people say kids are very resilient and I think they are but also I think they as an immature emotional being don't know what's okay to feel and what's and what's um too much for them to feel I think there's I'm very grateful that there's counsellors at both my girls' schools and the schools have been very, very aware of potential trauma, um, which is really good. Um, I think they tend to internalise it quite a lot. So I've got two very different personalities. I've got one who's very pragmatic and rational and says things like, well, you know, it's an amazing way to declutter and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be okay and you know it's just stuff mum and you know and that kind of thing she's a very forward-thinking rational person but at the same time I worry that a lot of that is just trying to convince herself as well um and then the other side I've got I've got one who who internalizes it a lot and and I can see that her um she has been affected her capacity for um, enjoyment and joy and that kind of thing has been has been reduced and I did speak to the counselor and she said yes that's a very fairly common thing as long as there are still moments of it then that's good and as long as she still is talking about things which she is um, but I think there's also a worry from them you know I, I do feel for this generation who are so bombarded with information about climate change with knowledge with evidence of climate change and you know what that means for how they think about their future 
you know and that worries me that we need to offer them some hope we need to show them that we're listening that we're aware and that you know we care about this and that this is something that is number one on the list of shit to do of something to sort out and something to fix and that we're capable of it that it can happen that there is hope that this is not something that we just need to throw our hands up and go oh well you know we fucked that up didn't we you know we can't do that we we have to sort of say yeah this is we we recognize that this is happening now and this is what we're going to do to fix it and we can do this and and these are the people who are going to do it you know this is what needs to happen for that for that generation and they're doing it themselves a little which gives me hope but how pathetic of us as adults if we just leave it to them that's not okay you know we need to be the ones going yeah this is how we're going to do it and you're going to do it with us and that's yeah that that kind of gets me riled up <laughs> um my husband obviously this you know his story of what he went through when he was up at the house trying to trying to battle it was intense I, I think he's probably not told me the full extent of it um to you know protect me a little or so maybe because he doesn't want to say it yet I'm not sure but I know that there were some very intense moments he had to shelter in the car at one point because the I guess that's when the fire front was coming through. So he said it was just like horizontal ember attack um, on the car because that's the safest place to be apparently in your car. It seems counterintuitive to me. but um, So he had to shelter in the car for a bit. Um, and, you know, obviously he was having to try and save animals and he couldn't, so that was probably fairly traumatic for him. Um, and just, you know, being up there on his own, he was there for like four hours um, from 4.30 in the morning when he woke up, looked at his phone, realised he'd missed the text messages saying to leave now, um, stepped outside in his, you know, pyjamas and was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> there's the fire. Okay, you know get into it and he just was into it straight away he said he didn't have any water he didn't have any food yeah and by the end of it he he said I was slowing down massively you know I was obviously majorly dehydrated I had a huge headache and I could tell I was just slowing down and it was getting a bit dangerous and I knew that there was nothing that I could do anymore so that's when he decided to leave um, and I'd, I've asked him since if he felt like he failed in some way, you know, because because he didn't save the house. And he said initially, yeah, but on reflection, no, because he realised what a nasty fire it was and that he was, you know, one person, multiple buildings, um, animals, vehicles equipment machinery you know so he he managed to save a fair bit of stuff he went into the house as it was starting to catch um and sort of managed to get stuff out my Ugg boots and some of the kids toys and you know computers and stuff like that so 
you know, he managed to, it wasn't, you know, com- we didn't lose absolutely everything, but, um, but yeah, so he, he's, his time up there was, you know, not fun, but he did. Yeah. I think he was pretty brave. I think he's, he's finds it hard to put himself in that category because you do, you know, it's a bit weird because you're just a person doing what you do. Um, but he's been very resilient. I think going back on the fires was was um, helpful for him because he was still being useful. Um, he said, you know, look, I could come over to Adelaide and come to this wedding. I could battle through the traffic and the roadblocks and all that kind of stuff. But they've asked me to go back on fires and, you know, I'm fire trained and they need everyone that they can get at the moment. So, yeah, he went back and did that. He stopped, I think, obviously when the fires stopped a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever. Um, he stopped and then had a bit of a calm down from the whole thing, I think. So, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, the town has been very resilient. The, the community is strong. Um, people are looking after each other. Um, the most help that we've had has been from people not organizations not government organizations has been from volunteer organizations like team rubicon um the red cross has been financially very helpful and then there's been a lot of criticism but you know i'm not gonna go there because i you know i'm just grateful for anything that we get um vinnie's you know um places like that salvation army but just people you know just the general public have been have been lovely people have been supportive they've been kind they've been generous and i think you know there's been a lot of empathy from from the situation and yeah it's 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 sad if if we, if i feel that people are starting to forget their anger at the government and their and their frustration with inaction on climate change, I feel really cross that that might be, you know, getting forgotten because it will happen again, um, and they need to be held accountable because they are running this country and and this kind of a situation has to be taken seriously. Or it's going to happen again. Plus, it has to be taken seriously out of respect for what's happened and who it's happened to. Um, and to say this was just a freak event is a lie um, and is short-sighted and, uh, and is dangerous, really. I want to see... In massive investment in renewable energies. And I want to see this um, pandering to coal gone. It's, it's simply down to money and it has to end. And we have to embrace renewable energies because it's the, the only way forward for the future. I feel like we need to take seriously water usage, how it's, how it's handled 
money involved in it and we also need to take seriously how we understand farming and producing food in this country it's a it's a double-edged sword you know we've got a, a climate that's changing and also we've got a monoculture of farming and it's drying the land out and we need to go back to putting money into small production we need to go back to putting money into renewable farming and agriculture and going back to that kind of, and there is a movement for that that needs to be recognized um and i just think an admission that that this is that this is real and it's more important than my friends in the coal lobby it's more important than my job you know that's the thing I feel that politicians are just in this cycle of let's just get re-elected. Let's do whatever we can to get re-elected. And if that's pandering to the coal lobby, then let's do that. We need someone who doesn't care about their job, doesn't care about their image. Like Scott Morrison, when he came down to Gobago, everything he did was, was centered around himself, his own image what he could get out of it for votes. None of it was, was actually coming here to talk to people as a human being. It was a PR exercise and it was disgusting. So it was, it was so awful. Oh, it was so awful. And so, yeah, and for someone who, who we have elected and, well, I didn't, but who we pay, um, I find that, you know, yeah, disgraceful. If any, if there are any politicians who do listen to it, I, I feel that sometimes you f- they forget their humanity, that, you know, you're just a human, just like everybody else. There are lots of politicians who don't forget that, but I feel that, that those higher echelons get wrapped up in that little bubble of parliament and government and forget that this is that they are employed by us to do a job of looking after the country and the people and the land that's in it and and that that as we said before takes a you need to take a wider view it needs to not be about you and your party and your job it needs to be about actually what is the right decision to be making it's not always a decision that people are going to thank you for immediately but if it's the right decision for the future and for the our children and for this country and this ultimately this planet then that has to be the decision you make you're listening to catastrophic a dual podcast and political protest project catastrophic tells the tales of the australian bushfires and calls for non-partisan political action around climate change Each episode of Catastrophic features an Australian talking about their experience of living through the bushfire crisis and beyond, what their fears are now and for the future, and what they would like to see done about it on a government level. But it doesn't end when the episode goes out. Each episode of Catastrophic will also be included in an email to politicians and media that will go out every week or as long as we have stories to tell. Each episode we release and each email we send out demands the same action. One, 
No new coal, oil and gas projects, including the Adani mine and the Wallara 2 coal project. 2. 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030. 3. Fund a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and communities. 4. Hand over land conservation management to First Nations Australians. 5. Start preserving our water and treating it as a precious resource, not a sellable commodity. Denial around this issue is now a choice, not an option. This has all been predicted by scientists for the last 30 years, and it's time our government did something about it. It's time they protected our planet and our future. Thank you for listening to and participating in the Catastrophic Podcast Project. If you or anyone you know has a story they would like to share from or about the Aussie bushfires, please instant message us via the Catastrophic Podcast Facebook page or email us at info at listenuppodcasting.com.au and we will get in touch to record your story. It may not be straight away. Please be patient. We are fielding a lot of queries and we're trying to do all of this in the cracks of life. The best thing you can do to help us with this project is to rate it and review it wherever you get your podcast, share it around to everyone you know, get it in front of the politicians, email it to them, and help us get the word out. So thank you again for listening. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your pods and um, stay safe and keep fighting for climate action. This podcast was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people of the Climactic Collective and all the shows on the network at climactic.com.au. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective.